0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network. I am your host, Joel Cherney. My guest today is Lucy Marzola, author of the book Engineering Hollywood, Technology, Technicians, and the Science of Building the Studio System, published in 2021 by Oxford University Press. We review the importance of how films depended on various scientific processes to build the studio system in the early days of movies. Welcome, Lucy Marzola. Hi, Lucy. How are you?
1: Hi, how are you?
0: Glad to have you on the podcast. The book we're talking about is your book that came out earlier this year, Engineering Hollywood. Technology technicians and the science of building the studio system, published by Oxford University Press. Uh, this is your first book, and as you indi- indi- indicated early on, it came out of your your doctoral dissertation, which is not unusual for people's for academics' first books to be that way. But I found the entire topic so interesting um, that I think it was it, it was a good idea to use it that way because I think it presents really useful. Details. So, let's let's talk about your background. Um, obviously, from the writing that you've done for articles and such, this is a topic that's been around for a while with you. But what led you into film in the first place, especially on an academic level? Um,
1: well, I guess I started off as I think most of us do as just a, a film buff um, growing up, just absorbing everything I could. Um, in the you know the books that were available at the local bookstore and all, every film that came out and everything that was available at the local video store, um, and for a long time I thought that then I wanted to make films and I tried that for a little while and I realized I was much more interested in in that um, uh, the studying part of it, the history of it, and so I I went back to grad school and um, kind of found my way towards topics that interested me, questions that I was interested in answering that I felt like hadn't been answered you know after i've absorbed all of the um a lot of literature um so yeah that was kind of the the quick version of of the journey to to grad school and um and i was interested in i think i started interested in this general idea of you know how films interact with the culture in the world and um got into questions of Hollywood and what, you know, what it was. And after having lived in Los Angeles, I think you, you have questions um, about how it all kind of came together, why it, why it came together in the way it did. And I felt like the questions that weren't being answered by anybody else really had to had to do with infrastructure and technology. And again, I think living in Los Angeles, you really see the reality of how many people it takes to make the industry run. And I thought there was a lot that wasn't being paid attention to. Um, underneath the surface, and so I, I kind of it traced it back to its origins and ended up in the silent era.
0: That's that was going to be my next question related to it. What types of films, or what films in particular, sort of pushed you or or made you think more on this topic? I, obviously, most of what we're going to be talking about is the earlier times of of the, as you say, as we said in the title, the studio system. So that's earlier, but. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of technology things that the average person or even the average film, even a, a pop, somebody who considers themselves to be somewhat knowledgeable about film, don't really understand what was going on right at the beginning. This is not something... I mean, these days when you talk about technology, the average person thinks of CGI and those kinds of mm-hmm. things. And yet, there's a lot more to it because, for example, film at the, at the beginning was a, a physical medium. It had to be produced and... There's all kinds of things that you have to deal with with that aspect, and that's what you study quite a bit. So what were some of the films that immediately jumped out at you as being kind films that you could uh, study for this?
1: So... You know, as much as my graduate study, my study of film kind of came from my love of films, it's kind of the irony of it is that I don't really look at individual movies very much. Um, Unfortunately, I try to throw it in there where I can, you know, uh, bring up specific examples. But so much of what I'm talking about is systemic um, across the studios, across the whole industry, even outside the studios into, as you said, companies that manufacture film stock and cameras. Um, So I don't get to talk about individual films as much as I'd like. But I think part of my interest in kind of looking at that type of material um, came from, you know, studying these traditionally canonical films like Citizen Kane or the work of D.W. Griffith and seeing references to their cinematographers, to Greg Toland's work and how important he was to what made Citizen Kane revolutionary, Um, And looking at, you know, Billy Bitzer's work and D.W. Griffith's work and how much, you know, how much of what D.W. Griffith took credit for really came from Bitzer. And I thought that kind of indicated the kind of story I was interested in, um, which is the people who actually knew how to make this stuff happen. And how did they gain those skills, particularly when you look at somebody like Bitzer at a time when those skills, those skills didn't exist. There was no school for him to go to. There was no training that he could get. Um, So I was really interested in those kinds of people and cinematographers are kind of central characters um, in the book. Um, I go and I go past them as, as well, but I, you know, I definitely don't talk nearly as much about films as I would like. Um, But I think, again, I think it helps us understand films better when we understand the systems in which they're made.
0: I've always found it interesting that one of the major developers of film as a medium, and then eventually as an art form, um, was an inventor, Edison. And you can talk mm-hmm. about how much of it is his actual work and how much of it is other people's, but we know he, was, uh, he came in on, on, as a technology, you know, as a technician, more so than an artist. And so right from the beginning, um, this whole thing, and I think um, so much of what you talk about comes with the fact that early on, the people who were starting the studios or starting doing act- the actual work figured out they had to figure out how to get this technology done well because otherwise whatever they were doing just wasn't going to be uh, enough.
1: Yeah, and Edison's an interesting figure. He kind of, pred- he's around a little bit still in the period I look at, but mostly it's um, he's in the earlier period. And I think the work of, of people like Charlie Musser is really um highlighted how it was really more the company Edison than the man himself and I think that again points to how history is so often written as this sort of great man narrative and when we look past it we see that there's um you know people like W.K.L. Dixon who really did the the work in Edison's lab to make um, motion pictures and then later um Edwin Porter who was really the innovative cameraman who you know really in some ways is the first director in a lot of ways Um, Um, in terms of moving past, just being somebody who's behind the camera shooting to kind of thinking about story. Um, and, but that company is, is combined filmmaking and, and technology. And that in the period I'm looking at, we've seen these two, these two sides of the industry have completely separated. So as we get into the, the, um, later silent era that I'm looking at, you have the technology companies, Edison's not really involved so much anymore, but Kodak and the like, um, are on the East Coast and they're kind of making these tools for um, for production for lots of other things, right? Kodak's making a lot more money on their brownie cameras for everyday people than they are on uh, the film stock for the movie producers who are largely in Los Angeles by 1915, um, and they don't really talk to each other very much. And that's a big part of where my story starts: is where you have this kind of complete separation between those who make tools and those who make movies. And the story is a lot about how they find um, a way to make their relationship work by the end of the 1920s. And that the way that contributes to what we call the studio system and a completely different part of that system than the kind of focus on production distribution and exhibition. That's the focus of most studies, um, which is really just about the the film companies that, you know, the MGMs and the Warner brothers. Instead, I, you know, I was really interested in how those companies dealt with a bunch of other companies that they were dependent on. Um, And that was a, it was a long, uh, it took a long time to negotiate that relationship.
0: Even today, (laughs) if you sit along, sit around long enough and uh, watching movie trailer uh, credits, you will see company names that have been around for a long, long time with a lot. And then, of course, the other thing, and you talk about this right at the beginning, is these societies and uh, organizations that were built up around these various professions, such as ASC and others, where the folks that were actually doing this work and developing how to do the work were working together, joining with each other to figure out how to better understand what they do and eventually make it into an actual profession with training and everything else like that.
1: Yeah. No, I think trade organizations—they're not the most like exciting, glamorous part of uh, movie making—but they really were key to um, pulling together the system that I, as I saw it. So, um, the Society of Motion Picture Engineers, um, the American Society of Cinematographers, and then the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, um, which was doing a lot more work in this realm during the late '20s and early '30s than it was doing the awards and. and the museum which just opened um which is that how we see it today but this kind of infrastructural kind of uh, behind the scenes work to get all the studios to work together and get the studios to work with um the technology companies was a big part of what all three of those organizations were doing in this period um this kind of um on the side kind of work that was outside of the the labor of filmmaking itself but that allowed it to operate as smoothly as it did during the classical
0: era and of course those kind of organizations the trade organizations are still in existence Mm -hmm. asc still shows up next to most cinematographer names and in Mm -hmm. and then there's the editor the editing uh, trade organization and so on and so forth so it's not unusual to see these things um let's start talking a little bit more about the book uh we start right from the introduction because most people, when they write an introduction to a book, want to come up with an example or a illustration to show uh, how they uh, want to talk about their topic. And so, right at the beginning, you have a, a situation. You, you discuss how uh, a man Joseph Dubray um, attended a, a, a something, and it helped very well to sort of introduce what you're trying to say. So, who was he and how is he important to the beginnings of your story?
1: Uh, Joseph Depre was somebody I encountered really early in my research, um, who I, f- I just found to be a really interesting figure. Who he was a member of the ASC. He was a cinematographer. Uh, you know, I couldn't name one of his credits. He's not, um, you know, important in terms of aesthetics, um, in terms of major films that he worked on. But he was really important to the ASC. Um, in terms of uh, he was one of the very earliest members. He'd been around for a long time. he was he was French. Uh, he'd started at Pathe and made his way over to Hollywood um, after World War One. And he um, you know helped found the ASC. He wrote really early articles for American Cinematographer, really trumping up um, their role as artists um, and their creative role on the set, um, which I think they were really establishing during that time. And uh, Patrick Keating talks a lot about that in his work. Um, and then later in his career, though, in the in the, in the later twenties, he really uh, kind of moved towards the engineering side of the industry, and you know was really central in a lot of the the kind of technical um, organizational um, work, the Mazda tests, um, which we can talk about later. But. Um, Uh, that were happening at that time. And he wrote a lot, American Cinematographer. He advocated on behalf of the role of cinematographers in Hollywood. Um, And in the example that I opened with, he actually goes on this tour um, where he goes to a bunch of different um, companies that made tools for Hollywood and kind of advocates that the people that they should talk to, and this is, he goes to Bosch and Loam and he goes to... um, uh, GE and Kodak and all these places. And he says the people who actually work with these tools on the set are the cinematographers where a lot of them not knowing how filmmaking worked, just assumed the director who's already kind of, um, you know, got this public status as the person who's making movies um, was the person they should talk to And the producers, of course. Um, but, you know, he, he was kind of advocating on behalf of cinematographers and giving speeches in front of engineering societies talking about the engineering that was involved in filmmaking um, in terms of visual effects, camera work and the like. Um, And, uh, and he kind of has this great, uh, he's this great character who sort of weaves through the history in this period. And um, he ends up working for, for Bell and Howell, the camera company. He has a perforation named after him. Um, But if you, you know, don't study that stuff, you would never know him, right? He's not famous for his cinematography work really much more so for this work he did behind the scenes. So I thought he was a really um, a, a really good example of the kinds of people that I was interested in.
0: Because one of the things you, you know, your point right from the beginning is, this isn't a, meant to be a, a study of technology and how it got better and better over time. It's more of a matter of how it happened in the first place, that because of a lot of this working together from the various industries and the way they work with studios, these things happened and to help develop into a better system as opposed to, for example, obviously something like cinema photographers where you can talk about how the processes and what they do has changed over the years and gotten better or you know, has gone a different route. Where in this case, what we're really talking about is the fact that um, all of these folks in various industries uh, the studios used them and helped and assisted were assisted by them to put together a, a system of movie making that many aspects are still in existence today.
1: Absolutely, and I think that was a key ap- approach ahead. I thought when I started having an interest in in technology, like I said, it came from an interest in how Hollywood becomes Hollywood, not from a I want to study a particular tool. Because I, when I did look at a lot of histories of technology, um, they kind of had this technological determinism where you know these new tools would appear and they would often use that terminology and then this was introduced or this was be- and it just kind of seems to come out of nowhere um and then change style and that was kind of the the main reason people looked at technology um and i kind of you know looking at the model that um bordwell steiger and thompson had kind of given in classical hollywood cinema thinking more about how technology works in the system I was, I wanted to know how it got there in the first place, right? How did it appear in the studios and why do certain tools, you know, get tried out and thrown out while others become ubiquitous across the industry? How did the communication happen across the industry? Um, So less interested in sort of the innovation of the technology itself and more about how the technology worked within the system. So seeing it as um, a maintenance of a system versus an innovation, which is a, a really vital part of technology studies. When I kind of started looking into the more general history of technology field, there's this group called the maintainers um, who I, I you know, went to one of their first meetings and I was like, these are my people. Like the, you know, this idea that it's not all about innovation. So much of how society works and industries work is, is maintenance and, um, and this sharing of, of knowledge
0: I know that's that's the key is that many of these industries or probably most of them were already doing different other things that weren't necessarily film related but like you know you use what you already know to develop new processes and new concepts so it's I'm sure that that's pretty much most of these companies that they worked with were already in existence it's just uh, either the company branched out into more of these things, or the company already was doing something similar and therefore were able to be helpful to the motion picture industry.
1: Absolutely. We'd already seen that in studies of the coming of sound. You know, Donald Crafton's the talkies. He talks about how, um, you know, Western Electric, AT&T, these are not companies that existed to make talkies, right? They were companies that existed for communication technologies. And when they were looking for other ways to monetize those technologies, they you know, turn to the film industry and the idea of synchronization, adding synchronization to amplification and recording. Um, and then you see these things in other industries. So, um, one of my first things I published was on DuPont. Um, and that's in the first chapter of the book as well. And, and why a company like DuPont, that we think of as a chemical company, and back then was really more of a munitions company, um, why do they make film stock? um and it's because the 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 main material for making film stock is nitrocellulose which is also smokeless gunpowder um and after world war 1 they needed something to do with their their smokeless gunpowder nitrocellulose um, factories so that kind of adaptation of technologies to new uses um really actually helps us to see hollywood and the motion picture industry as part of the larger economy and not just this isolated thing
0: and of course the depressing thing is it's that particular Item that has led to the problem with so many films that we no longer have, because mm-hmm. as since it's possibly since it's made out of the same ingredients as gunpowder, it also is very unstable. And unfortunately, many of the uh, older films that we only have a small portion of of what was originally made, because it just died away, so to speak.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: So let's go ahead and start with the book, then. Uh, The first part of the book, you begin to talk about the actual way that the industry, the film industry, and these various technological uh, groups and people started to work together. Starting, as we know, the early parts of film was started on the East Coast to a large extent, mostly because that's where um, that was sort of the center to a large extent, in fact, it's not. We don't see movement to the west until later, and that's often for reasons other than. They're for a variety of reasons that people don't always know about. So, where do we start to see this in uh, on the East Coast at the beginning? Is it the fact that they're look uh, the studios are looking for help with uh, what part of filmmaking becomes very important for them to get help with early on? Okay,
1: so there's. I kind of ended up finding that there was um, different kinds of companies that work with the film industry. So as I already said, the early years with companies like Edison or Biograph, those companies made their own cameras, their own projectors, um, and then made films to kind of in some ways demonstrate that that hardware. Um, And We see by the time we get through the transitional era, we've moved to narrative, we have the Nickelodeons, it's a more established industry. We start to see more separation that as we see exhibitors going into production. um, So all the people who would become the moguls like Lemley and um, the like that they um, they're not technology makers. Um, And so they are kind of looking to third parties for their tools. So we start to see an economy growing up around that um, uh, and and we see two different kinds of companies, and that's kind of my chapter one and chapter two. Is chapter one is about big tech companies who happen to make tools for for filmmaking, and I put Kodak in that um, because they do make so much more money on their still photography and their and their um, tools and um, film stock for for the amateur market um, because it's just a much much bigger market compared to the few hundred um, film producers. Um, but also companies like GE as lighting becomes more important in the late 19-teens um, and Westinghouse as well. Uh, but we see those kind of major corporations kind of see this ancillary market for particular tools they have. And then on the other end, and on uh, chapter two, I talk about small companies whose entire uh, business is the film industry. And the first really significant sector of that is film labs. Um, so film labs became a more specialized um, sector, at first, we see that people who have studios have film labs, and we definitely see that that continues. But we also see the growth of independent lab work. Um, As they see, there's issues of quality um, during this period, particularly during World War I, once they could no longer get chemicals from Germany. We see that there's uh, issues of quality control that allow for this um, small market. Um, And in general, World War I really cuts off a lot of technology and raw materials from Europe and allows for that growth of uh, of domestic technology companies. But labs and companies like that, and then Technicolor's founded around the same time as a more specialized kind of lab, um, those companies really build themselves completely around the studios and catering to their desires. And that's true of people who make specialized tripods, who make wind machines, um, things that just aren't really used outside of film production.
0: We tend to not even when you think about it. Uh, still, photography had been around for quite a while before moving films started. So many of those industries had probably been very long in business at the point where which uh, uh, film as a the moving pictures became important and started to develop into actual uh, uh, an actual c- companies as opposed to. Uh, just being tests or or ideas that were, people were working on. Same way with sound, although obviously we know in silence the sounds wouldn't come along and be put together until much later, but obviously uh, they were working on it, or it was something that becomes important. So at the beginning then, this community of engineers, which is of course the beginning of the title of your first chapter, uh, we, you you say there's some cooperation and then there's some competition, in order to uh, to put this together, what let's talk about those two things because obviously some organizations and some people work together more than others. So, where do we start to see cooperation, particularly as it relates to different studios? Um,
1: well, that you know, the first chapter is really more about that among the engineer, the engineers, particularly in the Society of Motion Picture Engineers. Okay, and so it was
0: interior the, cooperation yeah, that yeah. we're talking about. Got it.
1: Yeah. And then the second half of the book is about how they work with the studios. But just to start with those, um, those tech companies. Oh, no, no. Uh, well, the, the Simpy is originally started by sort of more independent inventor types, which is, you know, who you see early in the film industry. Um, and it's really um, in the very late teens that you start to see these bigger companies like GE and Kodak um, joining the organization. And it was a way for them to kind of um have a dialogue with other companies making tools for motion pictures, because there really wasn't, this is not a community prior to that, right? Why would a person at GE have any contact with a person at Kodak? They're very different companies. Um, And they were, you know, parts of different kinds of societies. You know, GE people would have been in the Illuminating Engineering Society. Um, Whereas Kodak employees would be in photographic societies, Um, so the motion picture society motion picture engineers was a way to bring these people from really different kinds of technology companies together around the fact that they're all making tools for motion pictures, and they seem really content to kind of create that community um, for about a decade, Um, and you know, there's a sharing of information that happens. So again, among, you know, Westinghouse and GE engineers, even though they're competition, um, trade trade organizations serve these purposes where they could benefit from mutually sharing information. Um, and there's always this line between that which is mutually beneficial and that which actually, in you know, um, gets in the way of competition. So there's always... And we see this really um, in the endeavors that when we get into Hollywood and the Academy's endeavors, they're really, really careful about that kind of that line between what's competitive and what is what benefits everybody. Um, So we have that community um, in on the East Coast between all of these different engineers and different kinds of businesses who are all making tools for uh, motion picture production. And they're basically not talking to anybody in production itself. Uh, If they do, they usually have one talk at every meeting. They meet twice a year. And at each meeting, they have one talk from somebody who's kind of from the production side. And it was probably somebody from a New York studio um, or maybe somebody who kind of had left the business and was teaching or something. Um, And they were kind of content with this and sort of ignoring Los Angeles. You know, part of this is logistical. It's really difficult to travel to Los Angeles or or to the East Coast from Los Angeles um, by train at this time. Um, but there's also a kind of snobbery, I think, uh, about the people in Los Angeles not seeing them as as engineers, not seeing them as technical, um, not seeing their input as important. Um, in part because Los Angeles didn't wasn't an industrial center, um, and because the business wasn't serious. Um, and what you see is by the late by the mid 20s they realize that this attitude is going to make them obsolete at some point um, because Hollywood is gaining a lot of economic power at this time. Wall Street's investing in them. Um, it's just the studios are getting bigger and bigger, and they realize that they, if they want to maintain relevance, that they have to start working with Hollywood.
0: Do you have information or ideas or specifics about some of the initial uh, things these people work together on? What uh, particular aspects that would eventually be of value to to the studios and to Hollywood? Not just Hollywood, but to the movie making.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really takes off around 1926, um, 1927, um, and sound is kind of a specter in the background of this, but it's sort of experimental. Uh, Really, it's around improvements in film stock and in lighting equipment. Um, So the introduction of uh, panchromatic film stock and the introduction of incandescent lighting um, which are sort of two technologies that have been around for a little bit that Hollywood's been interested in, but that these companies had kind of kept away from from Hollywood because they were content to kind of keep sending the same material like no this works the orthochromatic film stocks easiest easier for us to make so you're going to use that even though it has a lot of limitations for production it's difficult to shoot outdoors because the sky turns white. Um, It's difficult to shoot faces properly. That's where the actors had to wear so much makeup um, and you don't get a, um, a large variety of shades of gray because it renders colors um, in more absolute ways that create this higher contrast kind of image. So it really um, takes um, competition. Like for instance, when DuPont comes into making film stock that Kodak finally decides to, uh, to advertise and make, readily available. The panchromatic film stock is a competitive element um, because of DuPont's entrance into the film industry, which of course they did not because they wanted to compete with Kodak, but because they needed a way to use these nitrocellulose um, factories that they had. Um, So you can see how these uh, business decisions that are made for other reasons have this huge effect ultimately on how the industry works and also on aesthetics, where we get this much more varied and higher quality film stock and therefore look to films after 1927, because of that introduction of panchromatic film stock, um, which again, it doesn't just, just appear. And it's not because um, filmmakers just discovered it. They'd known about it for a long time. It just the company wasn't making it available to them until they had a reason to.
0: Yeah. I know sometimes watching older films, silence, especially, it's hard to really tell that There might have been improvements from one film to the next, but that's not because of the film themselves. It's because of the way we're seeing them now because most of them are in such terrible condition or often in terrible condition that we don't always see um, them as well uh, as we would want to because they just didn't make it that long. And so some of these changes, improvements, um, definitely aren't as obvious to the average person who might be viewing them even now.
1: Yeah, I mean if you really want to see the difference between the orthochromatic and panchromatic film stuff, I mean you can watch a film uh like The Gold Rush um which is done with orthochromatic and it has this fairly high contrast, white white black black look and then you look at a film like The Passion of Joan of Arc which is made with panchromatic and it's these really soft shades of gray, the actors are wearing no makeup and that's a very exaggerated look, but you can, if you look at the difference in those images, even just looking at stills, you can see that what I'm talking about in terms of what a huge aesthetic difference this technological change um, can make.
0: And then the third, uh, the third chapter in that first part then is discusses how the studios began to incorporate these um, w- instead of going outside to get them, they started to have in-house uh, do some of do much of it or some of it in house. When did we start to see that happening as far as the major studios are concerned?
1: Yeah. Yeah. That first section is kind of, it's structured to get closer and closer. So we start with these big companies in the East coast In the second chapter, it's about these little companies like the labs and Technicolor who build this kind of network right around the studios and kind of really help to make Hollywood the center of the film industry, um, the, the actual suburb of Hollywood. Um, and And then in the third chapter is really about the technicians themselves and how they contribute to this um, infrastructure, this um, ecosystem of technology. Um, So centering a lot on cinematographers, um, not only because they are so central to the technology side of film production, because they are sort of the managers of that whole um, department, both the camera department, um, the lighting and also visual effects during this period is really under their purview. Um, but also because they left a huge amount of evidence behind. They, between the uh, American cinematographer, which starts in 1920, and the ASC files that are available at the Herrick Library, there's just a lot of material that really um, made it so I could really explore their contributions in this period. Um, and cinematographers were always innovators, so there was this kind of uh, use of technology, sometimes in ways counter to their... Um, in their uh, what they were supposed to be used for their intention um, that uh, served creativity as well as sort of just basic clarity of storytelling. And we see that, you know, by the the period I'm talking about, the idea of just the the tools being good enough to get a clear picture and to, you know, basically tell a story that's all been kind of figured out. And this is the period when style is really innovated so you know using lighting using camera in different different innovative ways we see you know early examples like the four horsemen of the apocalypse in 1921 or use of a more experimental camera um, in the 1920s and it's not just about the aesthetics but also about their ability to use the tools and to work with a company making interesting tripods making New kinds of lighter weight cameras that allow them to have more mobility, making, uh, working with them to make lights, um, that allow for the kind of elaborate figure lighting that becomes really popular in the 1920s. Um, so their work and also their ability to advocate for themselves as the people on set who are doing this work and who are important to making production happen, which also kind of, uh, gets into issues of labor and, um, Unionization, which I touch on but don't center, because during this period, there was a there was a sense that unionization wasn't the way to do this, that it was going to be through advocating for themselves as artists and as engineers, more so um, than thinking of themselves as labor. And it's really at the end of this period in the late 20s and early 30s that they realized that the labor part also needs to come along with those other parts. Um, but there were these efforts to kind of position themselves as. As engineers, without maybe using the word, but I saw a really distinct parallel with the history of engineers um, and the way that they kind of, um, the idea of an engineer is really about esoteric knowledge. It's like, we know things that you don't, right? The cinematographers knew how to do things that the directors didn't and that the producers certainly didn't know and that they were dependent on them for that reason,
0: I guess that's part of my question then. Obviously, these things that were going on and bringing in these people and the various technological advances that were going on, how did they get the um, acceptance in the industry? Especially when, I'm going to guess, some of these things ended up costing more money. And we know businesses, they... They want what they want, but they want it as cheaply as possible, or at least they tend to act that way. So, how were how did they get accepted, or or, or did mm-hmm. were there people specific artists like directors who were making the most of these and therefore asking for it, or was it the, you know where did this get into to the point where they became uh, vital as opposed to just something mm-hmm. it would be nice to do?
1: Yeah, it's a long process, I think, um, in terms of the specific tools. So for instance, with the panchromatic film stock, that was a really easy transition because it, um, essentially when Kodak introduced it, um, in a more commercial, you know, readily available way in 1926, they basically made it cost about the same as orthochromatic and very quickly made it the same price. And so for the studios, they're not looking at the line items on the film stock, very closely, right? That's the cinematographers making requests likely directly to the, um, the studio managers. Um, and so that's, they didn't really care, right? Um, as long as it sort of doesn't affect the overall budget. Um, incandescent lighting was did cause um, some extra expense because the lamp housings were different. So all those lamps that they had um, had to be replaced. They had to buy hundreds of new lamp housings um, for the incandescent lights. And that's why you see a little bit more effort had to be put around that. And that's the Mazda test, which is chapter four of the book is all about um, that effort. And that comes at a time when the studio bosses are interested in presenting themselves as more akin to major companies like GE and um, Kodak and the like. Um, And so by having a, a massive scientific experiment and making a lot of press around it, Um, it could help to justify that cost of of switching or just introducing incandescent lights. As I say, they they never actually switched, they just introduced them and arc lights quickly got better. And so they were using both of them. Um, But um, it's kind of a timing thing. I don't know if the introduction of incandescent lights would have been so dramatic had it not been at this time when the studio's were interested in that kind of large-scale investment. Um, and then, of course, when it comes to sound, that's imposed from the top. Um, it, the, the technicians were not asking for that. Um, in fact, they were not particularly happy about it, and they had to deal with the ramifications of that decision from the top.
0: That's true, because as anybody who's looked at the introduction of sound, of course, one of the big technological issues, The it's great, quote-unquote, as great sound was, it created whole new issues related to suddenly everybody could hear the cameras. Everybody can hear all kinds mm-hmm. of, of sound that needs to be figured. You need to figure out new ways to do it. Um, was there signs that uh, because of the cooperation or the fact that these were being these changes were being done pretty much for, uh, throughout, that helped to have the cost start to come down? The more you do something, in theory, the cheaper mm-hmm. it becomes. Do we see that that uh, the costs, even though there was an initial outlay that it ends up being less of a financial issue than you might think?
1: That was always the 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 technician's argument was that kind of more investment in our end of the of the industry is going to actually save you money. So there's these austerity um calls in nineteen twenty seven. Um, When there's a little bit of a, anytime there's a little bit of a dip in the box office, this, you know, the studio heads kind of try to use that as an excuse to cut salaries. And they were talking about cutting salaries across the board. Um, And as we know, the the salaries of stars are not in the same realm as as the uh, salaries of below the line workers, technicians and the like. Um, And so they made the argument that actually they should be investing more in their end, right, and bringing them in at the time, um, cinematographers and other um, part, you know, parts of the uh, set designers and stuff were rarely part of the development process. And they said, if you bring us in earlier, we can tell you if we can build the set or if we can shoot this, um, we can work with you on that side of it and actually make the production part more, much more efficient. And so um, those austerity measures, actually, they ended up writing this big compromise um, that, you know, the above the line folks kind of, you know, said they were going to sort of bring in their behavior and, and maybe take some cuts Whereas the below the line, it actually ended in more investment in that kind of infrastructure, and I, you can argue that that contributes to why studio production is so dominant over the next couple of decades. Um, that because they invested so much in their backlots and their um, sound stages um, in the late '20s and early '30s that absolutely there's a sort of an efficiency to shooting a movie like Casablanca entirely on the Warner Brothers backlot because they're reusing sets, they're reusing stages, they're reusing equipment constantly because of those investments that they made early in the period.
0: So Let's get farther into that with the second part of the book. Part two is subtitled the science of the studio system. And you've mentioned the Mazda test more than once. So let's Mm -hmm. test, let's get into it more because that's basically One of your main uh, parts of chapter four is to discuss these. Obviously, if I hear the word Mazda, I'm thinking the automobile, but obviously that's not (laughs) what we're talking about here. What were the Mazda tests, and how did they? In the in that chapter title, you you call it the first scientific endeavor in Hollywood, uh, and it's related to trade collaboration. So obviously, this was something that was done that they wanted to come up with something that would be of value to the entire industry. And Mm -hmm. so what was the, what were the Mazda tests?
1: Um, So the Mazda, Mm -hmm. Mazda was the GE's term for their incandescent lights. Um, And um, so they were, they went by different names. They called them inkies Mm -hmm. like short for incandescence. They called them Mazdas, um, tungstens. Um, But it was basically a new kind of lighting that was warmer and actually worked better with panchromatic film stock, which was um, captured the warmer side of the spectrum better um, so kind of on a technological level, it's this very simple thing. It's the same light bulbs we put in our houses, right? Incandescent lights. Um, but uh, what it really was about was collaboration. So this at the, by this point, we'd have this period of, you know, about 10 years from 1915, 1925-ish, where the technology side of the business and in Hollywood are completely separated. They send letters occasionally, but they basically have very little contact. And you started to see in the mid 20s this interest in increasing the contact hollywood is getting more professionalized more elaborate in their work and they want more say in the tools that are brought to them and so they're you know they're pushing on that end. and then on the other end symphony is recognizing that they need to listen to hollywood more if they want to stay relevant as an organization and have people listen to their you know efforts at standardization and the like Um, And so the Mazda tests were kind of, uh, were like, and the Academy is brand new and they want to get involved in all of this. And so the Academy has members from all the studios um, and they're trying to think of a way to collaborate to show that they, that the science is part of their main has value, right? The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. And that was sort of one of my key research questions in this project was like, why did they put science on there? No organization that was meant to represent the studios before there had been several Um, ever had science in there and i thought that was really fascinating and so this was their sort of attempt to do that and they did it around i argue around incandescent lights because it really wasn't that big a deal Um, like it was going to be a little bit of an investment for the studios because of the lamps and the like but it was sort of just a way for them to practice collaborating is the way i see it so you know it had been written about before it's in classical hollywood cinema for a few pages And it kind of says, you know, the end result wasn't this huge technological shift, but, you know, introducing collaboration. And what I kind of found was I felt like it was designed for that purpose, that they knew that the results were not going to be hugely revolutionary, but it was a way to kind of create some procedure um, for how they can work together, how they can work across the studios and kind of let the studios know that it's not going to hurt them if they share some information about, you know, lighting with the other studios that MGM can benefit from learning what Fox is doing and the like. Um, And so it was this test run really for that kind of interstudio sharing.
0: And of course, if anybody has any real knowledge of how films are made, even today, very few of the people that are listed in credits and such actually work for the particular production company or studio they're hired on to do this work. So Learning how one how to do something for one studio makes you as just as reliable to being able to do that for another studio. And even back then, I can imagine. I'm assuming did, did were these folks actually employed by the studios, or did we already have this concept of the hired the hired person?
1: The freelance work. Um, no, they were they were um, employees of the studio, like the stars were back then. Um, they were less likely to be under the kind of long term, you know, seven year contracts that talent were. But you did start to see that during this period more, particularly with the the um, as I as I like this sort of top rung, that sort of between the line, people like cinematographers, the heads of departments, those folks were more likely to be under a long term contract um, that included an invention clause that basically said any tools that they invented um, while an employee would belong to the studio. And that's why, you know, things like CinemaScope in the 50s are, you know, made by the studio, not by the, the people who work there. Even though obviously they're made by the people who work there because but they had these contracts that said it belonged to the studio. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's very, you know, most people did work long-term for one studio. You, you In the 20s, there's a lot of moving around. Um, cinematographers jumped from place to place and were hired project by project. By the end of the 20s, you're starting to see this much more long-term um, employment, and you see people who, you know, run a department um, for decades.
0: So then, um, in Chapter Five, you talk about how these technical, how technical education becomes so important, because obviously, as things continue to change, as there are, are improvements in various areas, it's a matter of making sure that. As a group, you can come up with people who understand it. And, of course, Chapter 5 is where you talk also as an example of what happened when sound is introduced and what has to be done and how, once again, it takes some collaboration and learning as a group to figure out how to make some of the changes. I mean, I know I mentioned the sound of cameras, but what other kinds of issues were going on with the, with the uh uh, introduction of sound that needed these technical uh, changes.
1: Yeah. So a big part of my kind of, uh, the, a big issue I had coming into this project was so many people have written about the coming of sound and I didn't want to write another book about the coming of sound. Um, but I, what I did want to do was connect the silent era and the sound era. Cause I feel like they're written about as separate things so often, unless it's a book, about the coming of sound, so I wanted to bridge that and talk about how the things that were happening in the silent era really make the sound era, Um, and so when I came to talking about the transition, what it became about was how all of these things that they had done, the Mazda tests, um, this establishment of these trade organizations in the 20s really informed how that transition went, and it was really more focused on how it had these rippling effects, so as you said sounds of cameras, the set acoustics, um, the uh, aspect ratio of prints, once you kind of have to squeeze in the soundtrack on the side. So all those kinds of things, um, not to mention. And and just the
0: development of that concept of how mm -hmm. you, of how you're going to synchronize the sound and how it's going to be produced.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So I kind of focus less on the sound technology itself, because I feel like that's been done so well um, by, you know, uh, James Lastra and, and Donald Crafton and Rick Altman Um, like that's, that's been done. And I wanted to kind of tell another part of the story, which is how do these people who've already been working in the system for so long deal with this and make it work. And I, I I ultimately think that it kind of adds to the narrative they have, which is I think part of the reason why the transition is relatively smooth with this major transformation of the entire um, production process, the business, um, the industry, um, was because of this work that they had done. And because the work, this collaborative work that they'd already gotten started, they were able to take the model that they had built around things like the Masa test, and do similar things with um, trying to control and regain the quality of production that they had before. Because that was a big part of the issue was there was a clear quality drop when sound came around. The, the camera wasn't, you, you think about the dynamic camera of a sunrise or wings, And how beautiful those films are and how, you know, the camera is just so fabulous. And then you look at, you know, Broadway melody and even the jazz singer and you're like, it's just not even the same. Um, And how do you get that return of the camera? And it's because of these people working really hard to bring the quality back up, realizing more than the producers realized, I think, that once the novelty of sound wore off. People would stop going to see these talkies if the quality did not improve. And that became the argument for collaboration, for what the Academy was doing, and for the power of people like cinematographers and visual effects people and even sound people within the system is that we are the ones who can make this work um, long term and not just as a novelty.
0: And then, um, of course, in the final chapter, you discuss the Academy itself. um, and it's you mentioned it a few minutes ago about the concept of why does the uh, uh, Academy of Motion Pictures Arts and Sciences? Why is that science is there? And yet, as we've been to talking about, science is part of it. The you know the arts are one part of it, but then the sciences are just as important, so they should be listed there. And it's every year we have the Academy Awards, and they often have these separate uh, organi- You know, each of the various organizations often do their own awards. And then sometimes there's all these technical awards that the average person, even nowadays, probably wonders, you know, what's this all about or what? But uh, how did the uh, the Technical Bureau within the Academy work to help the process along for the studios?
1: Um, well, I think it's a huge contribution that I think um, is kind is, is sort of invisible. And it kind of was in in some ways meant to be somewhat invisible. It wasn't glamorous. It wasn't. They weren't dealing with exciting things like they were dealing with things like set acoustics um, and which blimps and blankets were best at dampening the sound of cameras, things like that, um, that were really important to get the quality of the industry back up. Um, But not they're not sellable technologies, right? You're not going to market a movie based on how quiet the sets are, Like you're going to do it on the sound. And if you're using Technicolor, those are technologies you can market. Um, And so a lot of what they did was this kind of, um, work that would give them credibility within the industry with the companies involved in SIMPY, um, but uh, that was not necessarily for the public. Um, so I think that's a big part of what the Academy is contributing and helps to legitimize the Academy as something of value, which, you know, we know a big part of why the Academy was founded was to stave off labor organization. And by giving this means of power, to not just the above the line writers, directors, and producers, or writers, directors, and actors, but also to these sort of more elite, below the line workers, the, the department heads, as I've said, um, that were also members in the technicians branch, they kind of gave them an outlet for power um, within their sector, right? It was a kind of, it's an interesting way of kind of giving this limited means of power um, that helps the industry, helps them recognize the value of working together. But I think the the result of that is it helps everybody in the system. So the studios that are part of the academy, um, which is a short list, it's about 17 companies. A couple of them go out of business. A couple of them get absorbed by others. um, And you end up with the eight studios um, of the classical era um, that we all know. And they're sharing this knowledge with each other. And no one else can get that. So when you, I think it really helps also to explain when we look at the films that are made outside of that system. So for the race films industry, Oscar Michaud's work, he doesn't have access to the people in that system. He doesn't have access to their information about set acoustics and silencing cameras. He doesn't have access to these professionalized technicians that are going through the Academy Sound School. Um, And so when you see that the technical standards are not quite what we see in Hollywood films, it's not just a matter of money, but it's a matter of not being part of that knowledge system.
0: One of the things I like to ask with authors who with research projects as most people are there are research projects what kind of obviously you've already mentioned it briefly but what kind of source materials were you able to find to help you with the research um you mentioned files not only from that were in various places in Los Angeles but some of the some of the companies themselves as well when did you start to figure out okay I'm finding enough here that there's real there's a real possibility that this is the right way, a good idea to, uh, on how to approach this.
1: Oh man. Uh, that's a hard, it's hard. Cause it's, um, you know, as, as I, we talked about before, this was my dissertation. So you're, you're a little bit on a timeline with that and that's helpful. Um, you know, I, I, I had a good start, you know, when I finished all my crawls and all that stuff, I had already kind of identified all these archives, Um, I went, you know, lived not too far from the Herrick library, the Academy's research library, and just started going through every single ASC file for a member who joined in the twenties. Um, and that was a really good starting point. It gave me all of these questions and avenues. The project obviously changes from, from that initial place. Um, but you know, and then it's like finding the companies that were involved in the Maza tests and who, who I knew made tools during that time and finding whatever archives I could. And some of those were. You know, going to Eastman House, um, which is a very well-established archive and museum, um, and the University of Rochester right near it, um, which actually had more material for what I was looking for. It has the um, the Kodak Research Lab uh, material there. Um, going to uh, the uh, to the Library of Congress, you know, anything that kind of just felt like it would fit in with what I was interested in. Um, you know, and I, you know, I was I was lucky to get um, a. a fellowship for the Smithsonian as well to look at their trade literature, which got, had a bunch of stuff. And at a certain point you just kind of have, have to start writing. And I think I had a lot of material. I was also, I, I was like pregnant when I was doing all this. And so I knew I had a real deadline where I was going to not be able to go to archives uh, once I had a small baby. Um, so that kind of light life also helps you just decide when it's time to stop doing research and start, um, writing. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because I think the appeals of the archive and also the pitfall of the archive is that there's always this idea that there's more or there could be more. Um, and I was also, you know, I knew the Academy was really central to where this book was going. And at first I didn't have access to any of their inter- internal material. And um, And this was something that I kind of would ask the the archivist there about, and I'd get kind of dodgy answers. And eventually I found, uh, you know, once I'd sort of gained some trust, and been there for a while. And also they started just more generally opening up their internal files more. I got this great treasure trove that really informs the last two chapters of the book um, of being able to look at these meeting transcripts, you know, 60-page meeting transcripts of the technician's branch, of the producers technicians committee, uh, which really just absolutely like really built out um, the whole thing. And I'm glad I got it when I did, because I already knew who all these people were and I could look at it and see, you know, who was, who was um, participating and who was asking what kinds of questions, what their concerns were. Um, And that really helped kind of finish out the project, but I didn't get that material to the very end of the dissertation writing process. So it was really not until afterwards. And I got an NEH fellowship to kind of um, go through all that material and incorporate it into the final book. Um, So it does make the book, um, I think has a more substantial argument than the original dissertation does for that reason. But, you know, it's always a combination of time, life, and, um, and, you know, when you do feel like you have enough, I think you have to combine all three of those things.
0: And of course, in this, I always have to ask this for any book that comes out recently were you lucky enough to pretty much have had all your research done by the time you were getting ready to start to writing when COVID hit? I mean, obviously all these places closed up. So being able to mm-hmm. access the material, I mean, that's, I know the book came out in March, so it was a year into into mm-hmm. COVID. So uh, were you already luckily past a lot of that when COVID really shut things down?
1: Yeah. Thankfully this book, uh, the research of this book had, was done, uh, I want to say like maybe a year before that so i was really in the revision process um so i write, you know right when things shut down i was doing i was finishing revisions to send out for the full peer review so i was kind of more in that side of the process so thankfully there was no um there was not much need for additional research there was a few things i was able to access online thankfully um but yeah, no, I was I was lucky in this case. It's not been as good for the, the projects coming after, but it's, it was uh, for this project. I was lucky.
0: I was going to ask you, are you able to use a lot of the material that you've developed and found for this for this book as part of your teaching? Uh, are you able to teach some of this material or has it still been more of for research purposes and the academic aspect of it?
1: I think it definitely informs the way I teach the the the. Uh, Hollywood studio system. That I do emphasize how it is a system and how um, it's dependent on um, these larger economic factors and labor factors and technology factors. I don't. I don't think I. I definitely don't bring it into the extent um, that I do in the book. But you know, I teach a class on the history of cinematography, and I definitely talk about um, how how new tools are introduced, how the cinematographers worked within the system. Um, you know talk about panchromatic film stock because it has this huge effect on aesthetics um, so yeah the, I think some some of it comes in but no, you know definitely not I'm not I'm not assigning this book.
0: Are you continuing to do work on this or are you starting to say okay it's time to move on I mean I've spent a large amount of my early career and academic life early academic life on this as a concept or do you still feel like there's a lot more that you can mine within it?
1: I mean i projects that are sort of stemming out of it. So uh, one is on the Akeley camera, um, which is this really unique and interesting camera that just, I've had a bunch of research on it and it didn't really fit in with the story I was telling about uh, more infrastructural and and systemic um, issues. So I have a bunch of research on Akeley. His papers were at the University of Rochester and he kind of popped uh, the the camera popped up in lots of different places. So I have a bunch of stuff and I, I'm trying to develop that into a full book project on this camera and how it was used in, it was developed for safari work. And then it was used, um, for the earliest sports photography, car racing and, uh, horse racing and football and, uh, was used in world war one and then was used for the aerial films in Hollywood, like wings and hell's angels and such. Um, so I think it's this really interesting tool that kind of you know emphasizes mobility and speed. And again, didn't fit into this project, but that kind of, I, I wanna keep developing that research. Um, and then the other thread that kind of comes out of this is again, something that I've mentioned that I touch on a little bit in this book, but really wasn't central to the period I was looking at, which is unionization. So I'm currently co-editing a, a book on the history of all of the Hollywood unions, um, in particular, all the, the, the above the three above the line unions um, and then all of the IOTC, um Hollywood uh, locals, which are um, literally just uh, signing their uh, strike authorization right now, so it's a it's a living history that continues to this day. Um, that I think people will be really interested in learning more about the origins of those, um, that uh, why labor is such a, an important aspect of of the Hollywood system.
0: And of course, I'm asking this question at the wrong end of the interview, but. What was your technical knowledge in general scientific knowledge going in? Did you have to first educate yourself on a lot of these concepts or did you already have at least some of the underpinnings of knowledge of, of of some of the concepts that you really have to have at least some understanding of in order to write about it?
1: Yeah, this is a question I get a lot. Um and I think if you read the book, you realize it doesn't really get super hyper technical and when I do talk about technical things like how film stock is made, I try to present it in really straightforward ways that are useful to the average person. I think sometimes technical talk about filmmaking tools and anything can just get so in the weeds. I'm not writing for engineers to learn how this stuff is made, right? There's places they can find that thing, that information. Um, but um, but yeah, I think I think I'm just not afraid of it. And I think a lot of times as scholars, we get really scared that we're not expertise, we're not experts in science and technology and therefore we can't study it. And I think um, if you approach it like you do any topic that you get to know, you can learn it. And I think, um, you know, I always enjoyed science and math and the like. So I just I think maybe not being scared of the topic um, helped me to get through it. And if I could make it understandable to me and then write it in a way that was understandable to others, I felt like that was that was good for what I was trying to do.
0: Uh, we've gone through the book, and I hope uh, people will look for it. I mean, I know it's been out for a little while now. I hope uh, it's gotten good interest and good reviews, and uh, hopefully this interview will bring it to the attention of even more people. I, you know, every time we think, oh, we know everything we know about that period, we find out, no, nope, there's still more you don't know.
1: Thank you for having me. I really appreciate
0: it. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining me, Lucy. Your book filled in a vital part of the history of film. This is Joel Cherney, and I will be back soon with more New Books and Film, a podcast series on the New Books Network.